strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please uh, come in, have a seat over here. Uh, as always, I'd like to introduce the uh, gentleman to my right, my valet Wilkinson. He assists with our show by uh, pulling uh, all our reference materials from the shelves and also reading any passages that will be uh, directly quoted. Pleased to meet you. Listeners to our last uh, month or two of shows will know we begin with a mailbag segment. Uh, you want to explain it, Wilkinson? Yes. Mr. Ridenour will be answering your questions, one drawn at random each episode. You can submit them via our website. The details are all there. Please do be sure to read the rules first, though. Yes, by all means. We need to screen out any queries that might be badly conceived. But uh, let's see what we have this time round. Mail. Okay, I'm... Reaching into the bag, I think, yes, uh, this one. Uh, Wilkinson, you'll read. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> Dear Mr. Reibnauer, my question is, how many books do you have in this library we've been hearing about? That's it? Well, yes, and the signature and the address, it's signed Jack Jenkins. <laughs> Sounds like a made-up name. It's just so perfectly... The alliteration, perhaps? Well, like a pirate or highwayman, stand and deliver, that sort of thing. I suppose it could. Tell them it was Jack Jenkins relieved you of your gold. Yes, sir. Someone fixated on the 18th century who lives in a world of books and storytelling. I can't imagine why else he would be so concerned with a question like this. It's uh, it's really rather sad, actually. Well, I don't suppose we'll ever know. Well, what is it now? Uh, 16,700 around there? 16,735, if you count those out for restoration. Well, then there you have it, 16,735 books. There are 12 out for restoration currently. The water damaged ones from Italy? Yes, sir. And the volume on troubadours that needed the spine fixed. Well, then there you have it, 16,735 is your answer. That's counting bound periodicals per binding rather than per issue, of course. Yes, I'm sure that will help him sleep at night. 16,735 books. I, I don't really know what else to do with this question. It's really not much to work with. It does leave us a bit short for this segment. Perhaps we could do another question. That's not our format. Oh, well, no. Perhaps... We could provide other, some other interesting facts about the collection. 
some of the oldest or newest acquisitions or particularly rare volumes? <laughs> a shopping list for burglars, yes. Perhaps not that, then. Oh, perhaps you could go on with your tale of Jack Jenkins the Highwayman. Oh, there really wouldn't be much more to tell. I would imagine he would be rather uh, quickly apprehended by the king's guards, summarily uh, beaten to death, and his body discarded by night in a small and muddy uh, tributary of the River Trent. Oh, no grand execution and famous last words, then? Uh, well, yes, I suppose there might be a need for that. In order to uh, demonstrate the king's justice had been served, some useless peasant might be dressed up in a gentleman's uh, clothing and uh, hung in his stead. But the last words? I would imagine they might uh, force a large uh, quantity of gin down the captive's throat, douse him all over, so he reeked of it, then claim he was too inebriated to uh, impress onlookers with any of those uh, fancy speeches they've heard in the legends. I see. Quite terrible, really. Uh, oh, more terrible still. The hanging would go badly. Uh, perhaps the head snaps from the spine. The uh, peasant's wife would, of course, go mad with grief and open a vein. I'm sorry, but that's just how it goes. My apologies to our Jack Jenkins, but history can be cruel. Well, it's a colorful answer, at least, to a question that might have been otherwise a bit dry. I, I do what I can. Now, uh, let's get on with our show. Episode 27, Lilith and the Breeding of Demons. So, I am your host, Al Ridenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and uh, folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this uh, area of uh, intersection after writing my uh, book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle is made possible exclusively through the uh, generosity of our Patreon donors, and I'll have more on all that at the uh, end of our show. This episode will be picking up where we left off in our last show, discussing more terrors that come by night, the incubi, succubi, and of course, the most notorious succubus of all, Lilith. When the sun goes down, something stalks the streets of Galen Village. Every time he has this dream, somebody dies. You're talking about actual materialization. It is real. It is alive. The Incubus. This uh, 1981 film couldn't quite decide if it wanted to be a supernatural thriller or... One of the new slasher-type productions all the kids were suddenly into. Eventually it chooses the latter, producing in its final scenes an incubus that uh, the New York Times described as... A large, shaggy, extremely mean E.T. with bad teeth. If anything, it might be remembered for its strange cameo by uh, Iron Maiden vocalist Bruce Dickinson, uh, then fronting a band called Samson. 
It seems the director thought it would help sell his picture uh, if he uh, rather incongruously included, in a, this is in a scene staged in a movie theater, lengthy cuts from a music video by the band. And the title of that music video, just so you know, was Biceps of Steel. But this is not this strangest film about an incubus. I'm saving that one for the end of our show. That fiend that goeth by night, women full oft to guile. Incubus is named by right, and guileth men otherwhile. Succubus is that white. As described in this rhyme from uh, Caxton's Chronicle, a uh, medieval description of Wales, the incubus is the male counterpart to the succubus, both defined by their sexual assaults on sleepers. One of the uh, earliest references to the incubus comes from St. Augustine in the 5th century. In his book, The City of God, he offhandedly remarks, There is also a very general rumor Many have verified it by their own experience, and trustworthy persons have corroborated the experience others told. That sylvans and fawns, commonly called incubi, have often made wicked assaults upon women. Some of you might remember this reference from our episode on the wild man, who was also equated with sylvanus and fawns, and was assumed to carnally desire human females, and was, of course, also classified as a demon within the... Uh, framework of the church. The uh, incubus differed from the other uh, pagan figures in that it was a strictly nocturnal breed with virtually no uh, defining attributes beyond its uh, sexual desire for human females. St. Augustine regards the goal of uh, this desire as the production of more demons. From his volume on the Trinity, Devils do indeed collect human semen, by means of which they are able to produce bodily effects, but this cannot be done without some local movement. Therefore, devils can transfer the semen, which they have collected, and inject it into the bodies of others. In the 13th century, the theologian Thomas Aquinas uh, ran with this idea of Augustine's, and from the pure functionality of the demon's reproductive purpose, that of uh, collecting and distributing human semen, uh, inferred in his uh, book uh, Summa Theologica. The same demon who acts as a succubus for a man becomes an incubus for a woman. King James I, who devoted himself to the study of witchcraft and demons after the incident I mentioned in our last episode, during which his ship was uh, allegedly assailed at sea by witches sending storms, uh, produced the highly influential volume uh, Demonology in uh, 1597. In this book, he builds upon the notion of the earlier theologians, adding another twist. The devil, he believed, could raise a dead body and send this to accomplish their reproductive mission, a notion that naturally connects uh, incubus mythology with that of the uh, undead lovers and vampires uh, we discussed a while back. Now, the offspring produced by this process are called cambians. This uh, 13th century description by the Bishop William of Auvergne uh, from his book De Universo lays it out. 
The children of demon incubi, substituted by female demons so that they are fed by them as if they are their own and are hence called cambians, as if swapped and substituted to female parents for their own children. They say that these are thin, always wailing, drinking so much milk that it takes four wet nurses to feed one. Naturally, a learned cleric like the bishop would prefer the word cambian from the Latin for exchange, but we do have a more familiar word for these newborns, changelings. It's a good reminder that the incubi discussed strictly as demons by the churchmen probably represented something understood in folk tradition as a much more ambivalent creature of the fairy world. And this would make more sense of the legend that King Arthur's Merlin himself was a Cambian, having a connection, therefore, not with the infernal realms of evil, but with uh, the magical realms of the fairy. A similar legend attaches to the Nordic hero Hagen from the uh, Folsung saga I mentioned in our Death by Mother episode. Hagen's mother was said to have been impregnated on her bed by an elf. Alexander the Great was also said to have been conceived by a spirit sent to his mother in a dream, a sort of incubus in the form of the god Amun created by the magician Nectanebo, a uh, version of the story probably written in the 1350s by an unknown author, relates, Then Nectanebo left the palace. In the wilderness he picked plants suitable for the sending of dreams and made a decoction. He modeled a female body out of wax, and wrote Olympias' name on it, and made a little bed also from wax, and laid the doll of Olympias on it. He kindled a lamp, threw the plant juice into it, and invoked with oaths the demons. For this purpose he bewitched Olympias' sleep, so that Olympias saw Amon embrace her and sleep with her in a dream. Through the dark veil of history, a myth is told of a creature, the succubus, born of hell, often found in the form of a beautiful temptress, succubus, succubus, the seducer of the night, who may assume any form, a thirsty demon. According to mythology, the succubus often takes on the personification to seduce a human host. Succubus, hell-bent, she's to die for. The concept of the succubus is almost one I hesitate to discuss as it's been become so sullied with sleazy fantasy fanboy wish fulfillment or projections of sexual insecurities as uh, made clear by the snippets in this little montage we've heard, uh, bits from the film Serpent's Lair from 1995 and the 2007 film Succubus, Hell Bent, uh, featuring a professional demon hunter calling himself Sentinel, played by the uh, famously unstable Gary Busey. And if you were to ask which particular Succubus filmmakers seem most obsessed with... Sorry, I didn't catch your name. Lilith. Along with the previously mentioned films, you've just heard bits of 2009's film Evil Angel, 2015's The Chosen, 2018's But Deliver Us From Evil, and a film simply named Lilith, which was just released uh, in 2019. 
Now, there are many aspects uh, to the character of Lilith beyond that of the supernatural seductress. Uh, the final soundbite in the montage we just heard correctly mentions her role as a thief or killer of newborns. Her role in the Garden of Eden as a sort of evil parallel to Eve uh, saw her equated in Renaissance art with the tempting satanic serpent, most famously in Michelangelo's rendering of the half-serpent, half-female character coiled round the Tree of Knowledge in his uh, Sistine Chapel Temptation fresco. And she appears in uh, Goethe's Faust in the uh, Walpurgisnacht scene referred to as The Pretty Witch and is again associated here with uh, Eden's Tree of Knowledge. Uh, in that play, Mephistopheles encourages Faust to dance with Lilith, and while falling under her spell, Faust muses, A lovely dream I dreamt one day. I saw a green-leafed apple tree, two apples swayed upon a stem. So tempting, I climbed up for them. The pretty witch replies, Ever since the days of Eden, Apples have been man's desire. How overjoyed I am to think, sir. Apples grow too in my garden. And Goethe's uh, work influenced and anticipated that of the uh, English romantics. Among these, the uh, pre-Raphaelite brotherhood, whose uh, Dante Rossetti uh, was particularly fascinated by the character of Lilith. He painted her a number of times and also dedicated a poem to her, one uh, also evoking this uh, scene in Eden. And as the century progressed, the uh, notion of a uh, femme fatale for which uh, Lilith served as an archetype became especially important for the uh, French uh, symbolists and decadents. In that regard, there is a particularly interesting play called Lilith, uh, written in 1891 by the uh, poet, novelist, and prominent symbolist critic uh, Rémi de Gaumont. Grimaud himself was an interesting character, uh, a recluse because of a disfiguring uh, skin disease. He uh, nonetheless was a great influence on poets like Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, and also a good friend of uh, J.K. Usman, uh, the writer famous for his uh, decadent novels and explorations of turn-of-the-century Satanism. The uh, one play he wrote set in the Garden of Eden has been regarded as one of the most unperformable works ever created for stage. It's rather obscure and I only found it uh, thanks to a reference by an occult group referring to it as a sort of uh, dramatic mystery rite uh, possibly suited for use in their temple. It begins with uh, Satan encountering Lilith in the Garden of Eden. Uh, he immediately begins caressing her breasts declaring, This is full. This is warm. This is soft. Then the stage direction, which is really the best. Lilith is charmed by these manual greetings and falls back writhing and arching her body. But confronted by a woman he does not know, Satan becomes suddenly stupid and begins to knead her like heavy dough. He dribbles and his eyes grow bloodshot like a madman. He growls, barks, and bites. So let's back up a little and look at uh, Lilith's origins and see how all these uh, various roles she has accumulated around the figure. We'll start with the Bible, uh, with its sole reference to her in the Old Testament, book of uh, Isaiah, chapter 34, verse 14, uh, written probably in the uh, 8th century B.C., 
the prophet is describing how the Lord will lay waste to the kingdom of Edom, making it only fit as a place for strange and unclean creatures. She shall become an abode for jackals and a haunt for ostriches. Wildcats shall meet with desert beasts. Satyrs shall call to one another. There shall the Lilith repose and find herself a place to rest. There the hoot-owl shall nest and lay eggs, hatch them out, and gather them in her shadow. This, of course, is only one translation. Uh, matching ancient Hebrew names with modern uh, translations can be difficult. Uh, Seder could also be goat demon, or the word's also just been translated as wild goat or shaggy goat, but uh, presumably this would be one living outside the normal world of civilized herdsmen and one to which uh, sinister superstitions might likely be attached. Words to uh, substitute for Lilith have uh, historically been chosen to evoke the nearest thing imaginable for readers of a certain place or time. So uh, it's been translated as a night hag or night demon or even a screech owl in the uh, King James translation evoking at once uh, nocturnal, bird-like, and rapture-like qualities without using uh, a name unfamiliar to the culture of its intended audience. Unsurprisingly, since the Book of Isaiah was written during the period of the Israelites' exile in Babylon, uh, this figure of Lilith is essentially Babylonian, uh, inherited from the Akkadians with roots going all the way back to the Sumerians, that is, around 5,000 years ago, so it's uh, one of the oldest figures we'll probably be talking about in this show. Lilith's name comes from uh, Lilitu, a class of Mesopotamian uh, wind and storm demons that, like Lilith, menaced infants and pregnant women and engaged men as sexual predators, though they themselves were unable to reproduce. Uh, they were also said to nurse newborns on poisoned-filled breasts. And like Lilith of Isaiah, the Lilitu were creatures of the desert wastelands. Sharing all the traits of uh, the Lilitu, the uh, Mesopotamian uh, demigoddess Lamashtu, uh, daughter of the sky god Anu, seems to be a sort of individualized example of this uh, class of beings, one uh, perhaps a bit more precisely defined. So we'll look at her. Uh, she's described as having a lion's head and hairy body and long blood-stained claws. She may be uh, depicted as standing or kneeling on a donkey and is sometimes portrayed with bare breasts, uh, suckling a dog on one side and a pig on the other. While these uh, features uh, aren't necessarily associated with Lilith, Lamashtu's feet uh, take the form of uh, bird's talons. And this association with birds of prey, especially the uh, nocturnal owl, is very often shared with the uh, flying Hebrew demoness. Lamashtu's malevolence was greatly feared, and her power is so multifarious that she bore the epitaph. Seven witches. Along with those habits she shared with Lilith, Lamashtu is described gnawing on the bones of children and sucking the blood of newborns and young men. She caused nightmares, disease, and death, and even brought harm to the natural world, poisoning lakes, rivers, and foliage. 
literal meaning of her name is she who erases. The Mashtu's role as the seducer of men was not as pronounced as Lilith's, uh, particularly as we think of her now, but uh, the danger she presented infants was particularly feared as uh, evidenced by the many amulets and incantation plaques against her. Interestingly, many of these invoked against her the powers of a figure familiar to more studious fans of the movie The Exorcist. What an excellent day for an exorcism. The Mashtu's enemy, like that of Father Karas and Marin, was the demon Pazuzu, uh, a creature of the evil southern winds like the Lilitu, against whom he was also invoked. Pazuzu was a sort of rival in malevolence to La Mashtu. Invoking him against her was to pit one evil against another, uh, fighting uh, fire with fire, so to speak. Wilkinson will now give us an ancient hymn describing Lamashtu. Great is the daughter of heaven who tortures babies. Her hand is a net. Her embrace is death. She is cruel, raging, angry, predatory. She touches the bellies of women in labor. She pulls out the pregnant women's babies. The daughter of heaven is one of the gods with no child of her own. Her head is a lion's head. Her body is a donkey's body. She roars like a lion. She constantly howls like a demon dog. But back to Lilith. In the early years of the Roman Empire, uh, we find her mentioned in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. In the Song of the Sage, uh, Fragment 1, the author declares, And I, the instructor, proclaim his glorious splendor so as to frighten and terrify all the spirits of the destroying angels, spirits of the ill-born, demons, Lilith, howlers, and desert dwellers. Later, a century or so after the book of Isaiah was written, we find her name inscribed on the uh, incantation bowls they mentioned in our last episode, the uh, protective uh, devil trap bowls buried under uh, Jewish homes in Babylonia. An example from a bowl in Harvard's Semitic Museum. Thou Lilith, hag and snatcher, I adjure you by the strong one of Abraham, by the rock of Isaac, by the Shaddai of Jacob, to turn away from this woman and her husband. By this time, the Babylonian Talmud was uh, being composed with references reinforcing Lilith's role as seducer, and the figure was spreading across the Middle East and Mediterranean. In cultures under Greek influence, she was uh, often conflated with the Greek Lamia of our Death by Mother episode. One of the most essential elements of the uh, Lilith myth first appears in an anonymously written text called the Alphabet of Bin Sirach, uh, composed sometime between 700 and 1000 AD. Uh, it's uh, so named because it contains uh, 22 stories, one tied to each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And one of these provides us the notion that Lilith was Adam's first wife. It's believed the legend was created to resolve a conflict between two different stories in the book of Genesis describing how God created woman. 
The first has him forming here from the earth, while the second in the following chapter has him forming woman from Adam's rib. Accordingly, the second becomes Eve, and we learn that Lilith is the being formed from the earth. Because they are both formed from the same substance, the earth, Lilith, uh, in this tale, regards herself as Adam's equal. And when he approaches her amorously, she refuses to assume the uh, subordinate position, speaking aloud the ineffable name of God, which causes her to rise in the air, and after this, she flies away. When Adam complains to God, he sends three angels to retrieve Lilith. And they find her at the Red Sea and threaten to drown her should she refuse to return. But she declares, Leave me, she said. I was created only to cause sickness to infants. If the infant is male, I have dominion over him for eight days after his birth, and if female, for twenty days. But then she strikes a bargain, which is accepted, uh, saying to the three angels, Whenever I see you, or your names, or your forms, in an amulet, I will have no power over that infant. She also agreed to have 100 of her children die every day. Accordingly, every day 100 demons perish. And for the same reason, we write the angels' names on the amulets of young children. When Lilith sees their names, she remembers her oath and the child recovers. In the uh, Midrash Apkir, a collection of legends from the 10th or 11th century, uh, as well as in a later appendix to the Talmud, uh, we get some further details uh, on the story of Lilith and Adam. After recognizing either his sin or that of his murderous son Cain, Adam leaves Eve for a 130-year period of penance and fasting. During this period, Lilith comes to him at night and forces herself upon him after previously attaching herself to Cain. The spawn of Adam and Lilith are ghosts and male demons and female night demons. And Lilith is also later revealed to have attempted to seduce King Solomon in the person of the Queen of Sheba. In the late 13th century in southeastern France, and particularly Spain, uh, there was a flowering of uh, Jewish uh, mystical speculation that gave birth to the Zohar and a document called Treatise on the Left Emanation, uh, both of which add further details to the myth. Namely, the marriage of Lilith to the demonic archangel uh, Samael, uh, sometimes called uh, Asmodeus, and often equated with Satan. And if not regarded as Satan himself, was uh, certainly chief among the demons and a ruler of the spiritual domain of Mars and therefore given to causing war and strife among mankind. This uh, marriage, which is sometimes symbolized by the image of Samael riding a serpent, which by now had become another icon of Lilith, uh, was something that multiplied the Paris capacity for evil uh, so intensely that their unity presented this uh, powerful cosmic pole of evil dubbed the angel Satan or the other god. All manner of disasters from death and impotence and sterility uh, down to minor troubles like the souring of wine were blamed on this uh, twinned evil. 
In some variations on this myth, Samael takes three demon wives for his queens. Besides Lilith, their number includes Agrat Batmala, uh, also called the mistress of the sorceresses. Agrat Batmala was responsible for seducing the biblical king David and was known to pass over homes in her flying chariot or dance on rooftops on certain nights. The third wife was uh, called Isheth Zenunum, or the Woman of Whoredom. And she was said to devour the souls of the damned, and was princess of the uh, Klifoth, a uh, dark inversion of the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. Samael was uh, able to breed legions of demons in this new marital arrangement, but God castrated the fallen archangel to spare mankind. And after this, Lilith was said to satisfy herself by visiting mortal men in their sleep, and their nocturnal emissions allowed Lilith to produce further demonic spawn. So from this point forward, Samael's uh, brides, and particularly Lilith, became firmly identified with the notion of the succubus. We'll uh, end our discussion of Lilith with a quote from the Zohar detailing her seductive ways. This fool turns aside after her and drinks from the cup of wine and commits harlotry with her, completely enamored of her. What does she do? She leaves him asleep on the bed and ascends to the realms above, obtains authority and descends. The fool wakes up thinking to sport with her as before, but she takes off her finery and turns into a fierce warrior, facing him in a garment of flaming fire, a vision of dread, terrifying both body and soul, full of horrific eyes, a sharpened sword with drops of poison dripping from it. She kills the fool and throws him into hell. While Lilith also plays a bit more of a role in the metaphysical concerns of the Kabbalah, I believe we've gone over all the uh, necessary uh, spooky bits, allowing me to get back to that one other topic I'd promised to discuss before the end of this show, namely uh, that particularly strange Incubus film. Made in 1966, the film is simply called Incubus, or uh, perhaps not so simply as it's also released under the title Incubo, which is a word in a made-up language. In, in fact, the whole film, all its dialogue, was shot in a made-up language, and that language is Esperanto. So Esperanto was created in 1887, by a Polish ophthalmologist by the name of L.L. Uh, Zamenhof uh, as a sort of uh, universal language intended to facilitate peace and understanding among the people of Earth. And as you might have assumed, since we are not all today speaking Esperanto, this uh, pipe dream was ultimately embraced only by the uh, hopelessly uh, geeky or ideologically uh, naive the reason, however, for the film being shot in that language is not quite as idealistic. Director Leslie Stevens, who had previously created the uh, recently canceled TV show The Outer Limits, uh, along with his producer, 
believed that releasing a film in an international language would be a surefire way to boost overseas ticket sales. Well, this hardly proved true. Their second reason for shooting an Esperanto-only production was perhaps a bit more on the mark, as they hoped the uh, sound of this mysterious language would lend a somewhat uh, otherworldly quality to the proceedings. Stevens was so dedicated to this notion that he prohibited the release of any uh, copies that dubbed into another language, insisting only on subtitles. I would say that in this way, the use of Esperanto may have been somewhat effective in adding to another worldly ambiance. Uh, the film's plotline, which I won't go into other than to say it's uh, set in a nameless village in an undefined time period, revolves around magic well, uh, succubi, and incubi, uh, does seem to inhabit a sort of weird no-man's land where Esperanto might be spoken. And the choice to shoot in black and white also gave the film a sort of uh, special luster that made it more appealing to the uh, art house crowds. And the film had another thing going for it, at least in retrospect. It starred William Shatner, who was set to begin work on Star Trek shortly after the production ended. However, none of this could save the film. At the premiere at the San Francisco Film Festival, audiences were mostly baffled at the language concept, and the few Esperanto speakers Stevens could uh, pack into the audience laughed hysterically throughout the screening at the bungled pronunciation by the actors who had only been given 10 days to attempt to learn this uh, new language before shooting. No U.S. distributor would touch the film, and the same would be the case overseas except for a brief run in France. It was, for many years, considered a lost film, thanks perhaps in part to William Shatner, who has been quoted saying that he engaged in a personal crusade to destroy each and every copy after being threatened by a group of Esperantists who supposedly, according to Shatner, put a curse on him. Rumors of the curse upon this film are lent a bit more credence by a series of misfortunes surrounding its release. Stevens' production company went bankrupt, prints of the film were destroyed in a mysterious fire, and Atmar, who played the succubus in the film, ended up committing suicide not long after the production wrapped. The daughter of another actress was kidnapped and murdered, and Serbian actor Milos Milos, who played the titular Incubus shortly after the film's release, ended up dead in Mickey Rooney's bed, along with Rooney's wife, Barbara Ann Thomason, uh, with whom he had been carrying on an affair. Though it was deemed a murder-suicide by Milish's hand, rumors persisted after the investigation, speculating that uh, Rooney might have been himself responsible. A tragic end to a tragic story, uh, which is always a good place to end our discussions. So, until next time, I bid everyone out there, especially those in Esperanto land, Gislavenonta Foyo. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to uh, share episodes with friends you think might be inclined to also enjoy what we do. 
Uh, we particularly appreciate reviews as these are the best way to raise the show's visibility on Apple Podcasts and other outlets. If you've left a review, by all means, do let me know and we'll give a little shout out. Our website, boneandsickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group and Twitter and Instagram, along with show notes with uh, plenty of images and video links to the uh, film trailers and clips and music used in the program. Music and sound design otherwise are all original for the show. You can also find our donor link on the site. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including exclusive access to... uh, Extra elements that go into the making of the podcast, digital downloads of rare books, the uh, show soundscapes you hear in the background, and my Krampus book, as well as a signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson suitable for framing. Congratulations. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that pays for the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. Yes, really 100 hours. Uh, special thanks to our new patrons, and I uh, dearly wish uh, I had a longer list here, but the show came out on an accelerated schedule to get you two episodes by month's end. Uh, but in the days since we last did a show, uh, we have these kind benefactors. Maddie, that's uh, just Maddie, Andrew Lindsay, Joseph Kral, and George Novak. And thanks to Jesse here for her kind uh, Apple Podcasts review. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening.